0: Hello and welcome to the Film Jerk Podcast. I am your host, Edward Havens. This is our 50th episode, a milestone I honestly thought I'd never make. But instead of doing some breakdown like the 50 greatest movies of the 1980s or something like that, we're just going to keep things simple by continuing our series on the 1980s movies of Martin Scorsese. Last week, I talked about The Color of Money, which is my favorite Scorsese movie of the decade. And today, I'm going to talk about my second favorite Scorsese movie of the decade, The Last Temptation of Christ. Martin Scorsese brings us a startling vision, an extraordinary story. The Last Temptation of Christ. The full trailer for The Last Temptation of Christ runs 98 seconds, but outside of that 20-second clip, all you have is Peter Gabriel's score playing over images from the film. But we'll get there soon. The story of The Last Temptation of Christ begins in Greece in the early 1950s. Greek writer Nikos Kazantzakis, who had already seen literary success as a writer of such works as Zorba the Greek, and The Odyssey, a modern sequel, had decided he wanted to write a novel which would help him face the conflicts he felt within himself and the Greek Orthodox Church he had been a part of for his 72 years of life. His previous work, Christ Re-Crucified, told the fictional story of a small Greek village and its attempts to put on a passion play, reenacting the events of Jesus' trial, suffering, and death, But for Kazantzakis, who had also spent a number of years translating works like Dante's Divine Comedy and Homer's Iliad into modern Greek, this story only furthered the author's desire to write the definitive novel about Christ. The Last Temptation of Christ would attempt to flesh out the author's idea that every single person who has ever lived, including Jesus, is both good and evil by nature. As violent and hateful as they are loving, and that a sound individual will not ignore the evil within but channel it into their doing of good. Throughout the story, Jesus would struggle with various forms of depression, doubt, fear, lust, and reluctance, and would end with his imagining what his life would be like had he saved himself from the cross and lived the life of a normal man before accepting his death as God's plan to save humanity. In January 1954, more than a year before the book would be published in Kazantzakis' native Greece, and six years before the novel would be translated into English and published in America and England, the Catholic Church would deem the book to be heretical, adding it to their list of prohibitive works, proclaiming that things of faith and morals are to be safeguarded. A year later in Greece, just before the publication of the book, the Greek Orthodox Church made an attempt to have all of his works banned in Greece, saying, and I quote, that it contained evil slanders against the godlike person of Jesus Christ, derived from the inspiration of the theories of Freud and historical materialism, which perverts and hurts the gospel discernment and the God man figure of our Lord Jesus Christ in a way coarse, vulgar, and blasphemous. Now again, the novel had not been published yet, but it would be published a few months later, and it would become a literary sensation as it arrived in every new country. But Kazantzakis would only enjoy the earliest notoriety and esteem for his final novel, passing away in his final home in Germany in 1957 at the age of 74. He would not see the movie version of Zorba the Greek, which did not get made until 1964. Nor would he see American filmmaker Sidney Lumet acquire the movie rights to The Last Temptation of Christ in 1970, planning to make it his next movie after he completed his crime drama The Anderson Tapes, starring Sean Connery. Lumet had been an admirer of Kazantzakis' writing for years, as well as the movie adaptations of Zorba the Greek, and Christ Recrucified, which French filmmaker Jules Dassin had adapted into his 1957 film He Who Must Die, Lumet would approach the author's widow, Elaney, to ask about the movie rights to her husband's final work. And as it turned out, she was an admirer of Lumet's work and would give her blessing to allow the filmmaker to adapt the novel. Lumet would hire Jewish playwright Seymour Simkes whose play Seven Days in Mourning, about a Jewish family dealing with the Great Depression, had just been a hit off-Broadway to adapt the novel, and planned on shooting in Israel in September 1971. But Lumet could never get the financing for the film together, and he would eventually let the rights go. Also in 1971, a young filmmaker named Martin Scorsese was directing his second feature film, Boxcar Bertha, a low-budget Depression-era exploitation film starring David Carradine and Barbara Hershey. During a break in shooting one afternoon deep in the heart of Arkansas, Scorsese had noticed the title of the book Hershey was reading, The Last Temptation of Christ. Scorsese, a one-time seminary student, was intrigued by their discussion about the book, and Hershey would buy a copy for her director as a gift when shooting was completed. Scorsese went wild for the book and wanted to make it into a movie. But Lumet, at this time, still owned the rights to the book. And who was Martin Scorsese in 1971 to ask a master filmmaker like Sidney Lumet, who had yet to solidify his status as a directing legend with his early to mid 70s run of Serpico, Murder on the Orient Express, Dog Day Afternoon, and Network, to take on such an important project? Scorsese would himself solidify his status as a director of note in the mid 70s with his own run of Mean Streets, Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore, Taxi Driver, and The Last Waltz. But in September 1978, after coming home from the Telluride Film Festival with a bad cut of cocaine, Scorsese would end up in the hospital with severe internal bleeding and impending danger of a brain hemorrhage. While he was recuperating, Scorsese vowed to kick his drug habit and vowed to become the best filmmaker he could be. Robert De Niro, his old friend from the neighborhood who would become the director's rock during his stay in the hospital, would talk Scorsese into making Raging Bull, which of course would change the direction of the director's career, but also at the hospital he would inquire about the movie rights to The Last Temptation of Christ. Yes, they were available again, and Scorsese would pick them up as quickly as possible. After the critical and award success of Raging Bull, Scorsese would make his first attempt to mount a production of Last Temptation, with De Niro penciled in to play Jesus. But even with the freshly Oscar-nominated director and the two-time Oscar-winning actor aboard, along with a screenplay written by Paul Schrader, no studio wanted to touch it. Scorsese would go on to make The King of Comedy with De Niro in 1982, but would finally get Paramount Pictures to sign on to the project in 1983. But by then, the 40-year-old De Niro felt he was too old to play the 33-year-old Jesus, and he was deep in production on Sergio Leone's Once Upon a Time in America. Scorsese would instead cast up-and-coming actor Aidan Quinn as Jesus after Paramount rejected Scorsese's choice of Christopher Walken. Scorsese regular Harvey Keitel would be cast as Judas, Barbara Hershey as Mary Magdalene, and rock star Sting as Pontius Pilate. The $14 million production was set to begin in Israel on January 23, 1984, and more than $3 million had been spent during pre-production, including building all of the sets necessary, when the heads of Paramount, Barry Diller, Michael Eisner, and Jeffrey Katzenberg, decided just before Christmas 1983 against making the film. The studio was pulling the plug in large part due to a coordinated effort by conservative Christian groups like Donald Wildman's American Family Association, who threatened to boycott all of Paramount's parent company, Gulf and Western's businesses, if the film were to proceed. Gulf and Western didn't just own a movie studio. They also owned record labels, book publishers, Sega games, auto parts manufacturers, bed manufacturers, machine tool manufacturers, sugar companies, cigar companies, a clothing company that also operated the Miss Universe pageant, Madison Square Garden, the New York Rangers, and the New York Knicks, amongst many, many companies. And Paramount owned enough television stations nationwide that Paramount executive Barry Diller was considering creating a fourth television network to compete with ABC, CBS, and NBC. A boycott of all of Gulf and Western's companies could have been fatal. And was this movie worth all that trouble? It also didn't help that Salah Hassanin, the president of United Artists Theaters, the biggest movie chain in America at the time, had told Paramount that their movie would never be booked at one of his theaters if it got made. Within a few months, Scorsese would be making After Hours in New York City, which we'll be covering on our next episode, but Last Temptation was never far out of his mind. With his friend and frequent collaborator Jay Cox, Scorsese would continue to tinker away at the screenplay, even though his own parents didn't want him to make the movie, worried about the kind of backlash it could bring on their son and his career. At one point in late 1984, the culture minister of France offered $300,000 to the production if Scorsese would relaunch the movie as a European venture with a French majority producer, an offer that would soon be withdrawn when the Archbishop of France objected. But then something unexpected happened while he was hard at work on the color of money for Disney's Touchstone Pictures in 1986. An executive at Universal Pictures, for whom Scorsese had yet to work with at this point, made an interesting offer to the filmmaker. They would be willing to distribute the film as a negative pickup. Industry jargon for agreeing to purchase a completed movie at a fixed price, for $6.5 in this case, which would mean Scorsese and his team would have to work at scale to keep the production on budget. Additionally, Universal would hire Scorsese to direct a more commercial movie of his choosing in the future at his regular directing fee. Scorsese accepted the deal, and in October 1987, he would be in Morocco calling action on his passion project. There would be some changes to the cast over the years. Keitel and Hershey were still a part of the production, But Sting would be forced to bow out of the film due to a tour commitment. David Bowie would take his place. Aidan Quinn was no longer available to play Jesus, so the title role would go to Willem Dafoe, who had become a star thanks to his Oscar nominated role in Oliver Stone's Platoon. And joining them in Morocco would be one of the most interesting groups of actors and musicians ever assembled for a movie. Veteran actors like Victor Argo, Verna Bloom, Robert's Blossoms, Andre Gregory, and Harry Dean Stanton would be cast in major roles, alongside Irvin Kirshner, the director of The Empire Strikes Back, who had never acted in a movie before. The director would also bring two of his favorite musicians along, Michael Bean, the leader of Santa Cruz-based rock group The Call, who had also never acted in a film before, and John Lurie of The Lounge Lizards, most familiar to film fans as the star of such jarmish movies as Stranger Than Paradise and Down by Law. Because he didn't quite have the money he needed to make the movie the way he wanted to make it, Scorsese didn't have much time to rehearse with the actors before production began, leading to a minimalist approach to filmmaking not seen on his sets since Boxcar Bertha and Mean Streets. Conditions in Morocco were rough, but the production pushed through, completing, ironically enough, on Christmas Day, 1987. After the New Year, Scorsese and his longtime editor, Thelma Schumacher, would get to work assembling the footage. One happy accident they would discover would be in one of the takes for the final scene in the film, when Jesus snaps back to reality after his daydream of a long life lived not as the Messiah, but as a mere human being. He has accepted his fate. He smiles. Looks up to the heavens, yells out, It is accomplished! He says it again quietly once more, It is accomplished. And then the image does a strange whiteout effect just as Jesus dies on the cross. According to Scorsese, whatever happened with that take of the shot was not intentional. It appears that there was a fault with how the film magazine was loaded onto the camera and some light leaked onto the negative at that exact moment. Whether it was divine intervention or not, it was the perfect way to end the movie. Universal Studios was still concerned with how the film would be received and would hire Tim Penland, a born-again Christian marketing consultant who helped promote Chariots of Fire in the mission, to calm evangelical leaders until they had a chance to see the final film. Scorsese had hoped to have a first cut of the film ready for viewing in March, But Scorsese and Schumacher would continue editing the film well into April, which also delayed Peter Gabriel from getting to work on his score. By early June, evangelicals like Wildman, John Probst of Media Focus, and Don Beeler of Campus Crusade for Christ were told Scorsese would be able to show them an uncompleted cut of the film on July twelfth. But that wasn't good enough for them. They were tired of waiting and Penland, who felt the filmmaker and the studio's promise to screen the film for them far in advance of the public release was broken, would resign his place as an intermediary. Scorsese had hoped to get his final cut to Universal in early August, but he would end up churning it in by mid-July. After their first screening of the two-hour and 43-minute film, they quickly moved the release date up from late October to August 12th, partly in the hopes to capitalize on the publicity generated by the threats of boycott, partly in the hopes of minimizing the chances of the planning of a widespread boycott if the boycotters only had a couple of weeks to map out a strategy, and partly because Scorsese had created a flat-out masterpiece. But the evangelicals were able to move swiftly. Within days, Tim Penland, Bill Bright of Campus Crusade for Christ, Reverend Jack Hayford of Church on the Way and religious radio orator Reverend Lloyd John Ogilvy all called for Universal to destroy all elements of the film, claiming that it blasphemed Jesus. Bright even offered to raise $10 million to make this happen. Universal did not take him up on his offer. When Universal started reaching out to exhibitors about booking the movie at the end of July, a number of them flat-out refused to play the film. General Cinemas, Edward Theaters, Luxury Theaters, and Wometco Theaters would join United Artists in saying, uh, thanks, but uh, no thanks, to the invitation to play the movie. In fact, there was only one chain Universal could count on to play it. Cineplex Odeon Cinemas, based in Toronto and Century City, which had quickly expanded into America over the previous five years, and a company that, in order to skirt the paramount decree, Universal was a 49.7% owner of. All nine theaters that opened The Last Temptation of Christ on Friday, August 12th, were cineplex Odeon theaters, including the Ziegfeld Theater in New York City, the Century Plaza Cinemas in Los Angeles, The Biograph in Chicago and the North Point Theater in San Francisco. As you can imagine, the critical consensus for the movie was off the charts. Gene Siskel would note in his review that all of what he called the uninformed protests would only serve to fuel the attendance for what turns out to be a very fine, thoughtful, and beautifully performed rumination on Jesus and the difficulty of his living According to his principles, David Sterrett, the critic for the Christian Science Monitor, would go on ABC's Nightline a few days before the movie opened and proclaimed that the film very much deserved to be seen, that he hoped people would go and see it and make up their own minds about it, and that filmgoers needed to support filmmaking with this kind of courage and ambition. And Richard Corliss of Time magazine would state that Scorsese. With this film, was America's most gifted and daring filmmaker. But the forces against the film were out in force that week. More than 25,000 people picketed at the front gates of the Universal Studios theme park in Los Angeles on the movie's opening day, and another 7,000 at Universal Studios in Orlando and thousands more were present in front of every theater playing the film i myself was at that first public screening at the north point theater in san francisco my friends and i gathered at a denny's in santa cruz at 3 in the morning loading up on pancakes and omelets and coffees before heading out to the theater a good 75 miles away traffic at 4:30 a.m. on a friday heading into san francisco wasn't going to be too bad and we would arrive at the parking lot across the street from the theater around 6 a.m. We wanted to be first in line to get our tickets, because you must remember in 1988, we did not have an internet to purchase our tickets in advance. You had to be at the theater to buy the tickets, and you couldn't just go up to the box office at like 10 in the morning and say, "Uh, give me two for the 7 p.m. show. It had to be for whatever was the next showtime. But as we were about to pass the theater to get to the parking lot, we saw that there were already about two dozen people lined up in front of the box office. Dick, who was driving, pulled over to the curb and let me and a couple others out to get our spot in line while he parked. For four and a half hours, my friends and I watched what would eventually become the human equivalent of standing in the middle of a hurricane unfold in front of our eyes. By 9 a.m., there was easily a thousand people in line behind us and another thousand people across the street protesting. Police helicopters circled overhead. Dozens of officers in riot gear stood nearby, waiting to see if anything would erupt. Television cameras from local channels and national news organizations captured all the madness. My friends and I and our fellow film lovers were spat at, accused of being in leagues with the devil, and were told that God himself would smite the theater as soon as the film started showing, sending us all down into the pits of hell forever. Thankfully, that didn't happen. But entering the theater was an even stranger experience. The doors opened at 10.30 a.m. for the 11 a.m. show. There were more than a dozen armed security guards in front of the theater guarding the box office and entrance. A sign at the box office let us know that for these showings, patrons could only buy one ticket for themselves. Entering the front door, more armed security guards would pat us down and run a handheld metal detector around our bodies to ensure we weren't bringing any weapons in. And since there were very few theaters with reserved seating in 1988, we had to make sure we got six seats together, which wasn't a problem since the North Point had 962 seats and we were within the first few dozen to buy tickets. But when we actually entered the auditorium, we found the first several rolls blocked off and another dozen or so armed security guards at the front of the seating area, three manned in front of each aisle in case some joker tried to slash the screen which a number of protesters outside had promised to do. Promptly at 11 a.m., the lights went down and the movie began. No previews of coming attractions. No policy trailers. Just right into Peter Gabriel's score playing over the Universal Pictures logo. And then the opening card for the film, a quote from Kazantzakis' preface of the original novel. The dual substance of Christ. The yearning, so human, so superhuman, of man to attain God has always been a deep inscrutable mystery to me. My principal anguish and source of all my joy and sorrows from my youth onward have been the incessant, merciless battle between the spirit and the flesh, and my soul is the arena where these two armies have clashed and met. That was followed by a second title card. This film is not based upon the Gospels, but upon this fictional exploration of the eternal spiritual conflict. And then, we finally get into the movie. Now, as an atheist, I didn't respond to the film based on any of the theological discourses within. In fact, I don't even know if I'm saying that right. I haven't been in a church outside of a wedding or my brother's baptism in more than 40 years. I've never read the Bible, and I don't know much about its contents, except for the things I've learned because of movies and music, like how the closing song of U2's third album War is a modification of the 40th Psalm. Not that I even know if the Psalms are a part of the Old Testament or the New Testament. I just know that it's a good song, and it's got a great bass line. I don't know how good Willem Dafoe is was at playing Jesus. But what I do know is that Willem Dafoe gave one of his all-time best performances in the role. I don't know how good Barbara Hershey was at playing Mary Magdalene. I just know that she was at the top of her game in that role. I don't know how well David Bowie was at playing Pontius Pilate. I just know that for those few minutes when he is on screen, He was so mesmerizing, I and everybody else in the theater were unable to take our eyes off of him. And yeah, having the apostles speak like they were from Little Italy might not have been the best choice, but the actors themselves were marvelous despite that choice. What I also know is that I was aware as I was watching it that I was watching a filmmaker finally find his true voice. I know that I was watching a cinematographer and a production designer and a costume designer and a number of other technicians whose work belied the limited budget they had to make their departments work. I know that Peter Gabriel's score, which introduced me to some of the artisan sounds that would become a constant in my life, moved me in ways that might have actually been spiritual in nature. It killed me that we had to wait nearly 10 months after the release of the movie to finally get something resembling a soundtrack, only to be replaced with joy in discovering that we were actually getting two albums worth of music featured in the movie or were Gabriel's inspiration for the music he would create for the movie. I had never heard traditional music from Armenia, Egypt, Ethiopia, Guinea, India, Iran, Morocco, Pakistan, Senegal, or Turkey before. And 32 years later, I'm still regularly listening to both Passion, Music for the Last Temptation of Christ, and Passion, Sources. I've listened to them while I was researching and writing this episode, and they still sound as fresh and exciting as they were the day they came into my life. After the screening ended, the circus outside had subsided a bit. There were still a number of protesters, although their numbers had thinned out quite a bit, and the line for the second show was not nearly as long. My friends and I drove home, and I took a short nap before I had to get ready for work that night. Dick would call me at work around 8 p.m. to let me know that one of the San Francisco station's local news magazine program that night had included a major segment on the local uproar over the movie, and the segment included an interview with us while we waited in line. He taped it for me so we could watch it later. Protests continued at the theaters playing the movie all weekend, but that didn't seem to scare away many potential viewers. When the weekend box office grosses were released on Monday morning, The Last Temptation of Christ had grossed more than $400,000 from those nine theaters. That $44,579 per screen average was more than eight and a half times higher than the next movie with the next highest PSA, Tucker, The Man and His Dream, which had opened in 720 theaters the same day. Ironically, Jeff Bridges was a huge fan of Kazantzakis' writings and had actively lobbied Martin Scorsese to play Jesus when the director first optioned the novel back in the late 1970s. To put that $44,579 per screen average into context, do you remember how nuts the opening weekend of Avengers Endgame was in theaters two years ago? Every theater playing it seemed like they were playing on more than half of its screens. And if you didn't like the available seating in one show time, you usually didn't have to wait more than half an hour to see what the seating was like for the next show. Aventure's Endgame's opening weekend per screen average was $76,601. Now, per screen average in this case is a misnomer of sorts, because while it was playing in 4,662 theaters, it was easily playing on more than one screen in each theater. And it was often playing in IMAX and or 3D and or a myriad of other specialty auditoriums that came with a higher than average ticket price. The Last Temptation of Christ didn't play on any IMAX screens. It didn't show in 3D. And there were no specialty auditoriums with higher-than-average ticket prices boosting its sales. The cost of a movie ticket in 1988 averaged $4.11. In 2019, that average was $9.16, more than 2.23 times the cost of a ticket 31 years earlier. So, if you were to take that $44,579 average from 1988 and multiply it by the difference in ticket prices between the two eras, Last Temptations per screen average on single screens without the benefit of all those bells and whistles we have today, with only four shows per day in each of those locations, would have been $99,354. In its second weekend, the movie would expand from 9 screens to 18, with all new screens being Cineplex Odeans, and its weekend gross would increase to $476,000. The per capita would drop more than 40%, but it would still be more than three and a half times more than A Nightmare on Elm Street 4's next highest PSA. In week three, the film would add another 30 theaters, but this time... A number of them were not cineplex locations. In Los Angeles, the film would add both the cineplex Universal City cinemas and the AMC main place in Santa Ana. In New York, three of the four new playdates would be Cineplexes, but one would be a national amusement location. In Philadelphia, a local independent art house theater would be the first in the area to play the movie. In Austin, it would play at one of television producer Norman Lear's Act Three locations. And for Lear, this was very much a political statement, as he had been a longtime supporter of People for the American Way, an organization that opposed conservative religious organizations like the American Family Association on First Amendment issues. The film would gross another $561,000. Week 4, the Labor Day holiday weekend, would prove to be its highest-grossing weekend, making $1.18 million in only 81 theaters. Compare that to Nightmare on Elm Street 4's $6.4 million haul from more than 1,750 theaters. The movie would continue to expand, but even at its widest point of release, Universal could never get it into more than 123 theaters, in its eighth week of release. By then, the controversy surrounding the film had subsided, and with that, the public mostly lost interest in the film. It would be out of theaters before Christmas, with $8.37 million in ticket sales. Which, to be completely honest, is not all that bad, especially when you consider that there was absolutely no television advertising and no A-list superstar like a Tom Cruise or Paul Newman to drive attendance. So, a movie that did quite well with film critics across the nation, and grossed their respectable number despite the limited amount of theaters willing to play the film, and a protest and call for boycott that petered out fairly quickly, should have done very well with year-end awards groups, right? Well, you already know from that setup that the answer is no, duh. The National Board of Review would name the film as one of the 10 best films of the year, and the Los Angeles Film Critics Association would vote Scorsese second place for their Best Director prize. But there'd be crickets from every other major critics group across the nation. The Golden Globes would nominate it for two awards, Barbara Hershey for Best Supporting Actress and Peter Gabriel for Best Score, but it wouldn't win either. And the Academy of Motion Pictures Arts and Sciences? One frickin' nomination. Only the director's branch had the balls to support their fellow filmmaker. Which, of course, he lost to Barry Levinson and Rain Man. When the movie was released on home video in June 1989, blockbuster video, which at the time was a growing major presence in the market, but not yet the dominant force it would become in the 1990s and 2000s, refused to carry it, as did a number of the mom-and-pop video stores most people were still renting from. I remember that for a time the only video store that even had one copy of the movie in my area for the longest time was a gas station that also rented movies at the corner of Maine and Soquel in the Santa Cruz suburb of Soquel I was living in at the time. In time, The Last Temptation of Christ would see a sort of Renaissance Amongst Cinephiles and Cineas, when in April 2000, the Criterion Collection released the movie on DVD with all the bells and whistles that come with a Criterion release. I bought that DVD the day it came out, and I still own it 21 years later, even though Criterion has since released a Blu-ray edition of the title. But even today, the film still causes much consternation amongst evangelicals, who can't seem to separate their beliefs from a clear work of fiction that ironically reaffirms Christ's commitment to his place in history. After The Last Temptation, Martin Scorsese would enjoy one of the best decades any director could possibly hope for. In a seven-year time span, he would direct five of the best movies of the decade, Goodfellas, Cape Fear, The Age of Innocence, Casino, and Kundun. He would also start producing movies for other filmmakers in 1990, starting with Stephen Freer's Exceptional The Grifters. And in 2007, after five nominations for Best Director, he would finally win an Academy Award for directing The Departed, the only film he's made to date that would also be named the Best Picture of the Year. As I record this podcast episode in April 2021, the 78 year old Martin Scorsese. Has just started production this week on his 26th dramatic narrative feature, Killers of the Flower Moon, a $200 million 1920s period Western crime drama starring two of his most frequent collaborators, Robert De Niro and Leonardo DiCaprio. This will be De Niro's 11th teaming with Scorsese and DiCaprio's 6th, yet it will be the first time that Scorsese, De Niro, and DiCaprio will all be working together. So, that's it. That's our 50th episode. If you've been listening since the start, I thank you. If you've only just started listening recently, I thank you. If you've ever told a friend to listen, I thank you. If you've ever left a review of the podcast, I thank you. Except for that one guy who left a two-star review because he doesn't like the sound of my voice. Thanks for screwing up my perfect score, jerkwad. Thank you for listening. We'll talk again soon. The Film Jerk podcast has been researched, written, narrated, and produced by Edward Havens for idiosyncratic entertainment. Thank you again. Good night.